From Green Biz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, will water pricing be the next carbon pricing? Honoring women leaders in sustainability, Mark Carney on why financial institutions need to ask the right questions. Oh, and what does the Supreme Court's climate ruling really mean for business? It's Emissions Impossible, this week on 350. It's July 8th, 2022. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad, as always, to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, fresh from declaring her independence, is Green Biz Editorial Director Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Hey, Joel. How are you today? I'm okay. You know, uh, this is the first week back from weeks of travel. I was, uh, you know, as you know, a week in Amsterdam, a week home, a week in uh, uh, Sao Paulo, a week in New York, and now home for a while so that's great it feels good to be home and um you know so much going on uh i say this every year for the past few years but remember when summers slowed down yeah i do actually it's a distant memory but i do but i do remember when it used to kind of pause and yeah we can't we really came into this summer with quite a yeah a lot to think about and talk about uh including our event it was great to see you Last week uh, in New York City, it was a lovely week, lovely, lovely week, and a fantastic event. And, and, and by, by the way, I, I, I just want to say, and I haven't said this privately, so I'll just say it for all the world to hear, you did a fabulous job on Sidebar. Sidebar, for folks, is, is the is the uh, anchor desk for the live stream, uh, and you can see the live stream of the two 90-minute uh, plenary sessions. They're available now on greenbiz.com, at least in their entirety, and then I'll chop them up into individual sessions. But Heather, you did interviews before and a summary after at the end of each one, and I watched them, and oh. it was really good. You, it was hard to do, and there was a lot of chaos, and you didn't have a co-host like you usually do. So kudos to you. You really nailed it. <laughs> oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Yeah. Actually, it was a lot of fun. There were some really good interviews um, that came my way uh, this time, and I, I liked it. It was it was definitely a challenge, but a lot of fun. I actually really felt blessed by the two panels that I had um, on the main stage to do. Um, I was tasked with moderating one on ESG scores, which could have been like very yawny, right? <laughs> but it was a really compelling session and uh, very, I think, a lot of great takeaways for the audience on that one. And then I was very impressed by the straightforwardness of the State Street CEO, who Ron Han Ronald Hanley, who was also one of our guests, and uh, really appreciate that. Your, your session, you had the alphabet soup <laughs> to end all alphabet soup session going on. I loved that too. It was just, I think it's just really substantive event that really covered the wide range of of topics that we need to address in the financial sector in order to get this net zero transition happening. It was just, um, I learned a lot myself. And a little bit of fun trivia, our, our colleague, uh, collaborator, c contributor, Emily Chasen uh, revealed um, uh, to me, uh, I guess on stage, or then she we talked about it backstage, 
that her grandfather was one of the first black employees, I believe, at Campbell's Soup. Mm-hmm. So I think when we talk about all this al- alphabet soup of uh, acronyms and everything, we owe him a debt of gratitude, or at least a nod of acknowledgement for his uh, contribution to that. Anyway, that's our contribution to this opening. Let's get into the more substantive stuff of the Week in Review. Well, we can't start this review without talking about the Supreme Court, climate change, Mm -hmm. and West Virginia versus the EPA. I mean, on, on the one hand... I mean, just horrible, Um, you know, handcuffing uh, the federal government's ability to do what it needs to do much faster than it already had been doing it um, uh, to regulate greenhouse gases and prod uh, American industry to to transition to cleaner fuels and and, and less polluting activities. And now those um, uh, what meager tools it had are are now being uh, as I said, handcuffed by uh, the Supreme Court. And the question is, is how devastating is this? And C.J. Klaus, our senior writer, uh, wrote uh, a really great substantive piece that ran uh, this week. Um, And, you know, basically saying the problem, uh, the biggest problem is not the ruling itself, as as, uh, unfortunate as that is, but the uncertainty that the ruling uh, delivers to business uh, and uncertainty, you know, on the one hand, companies, you know, profess to not like regulations. They like to do things their own way, market forces and all that good stuff. On the other hand, they like to know the direction of travel. They like to know what's expected of them. They like to know the rules of the ro- of the road. And this takes away from uh, a lot of that and c- brings a lot of uncertainty to the story. And and it, it, up to, in fact, uh, uh, what she starts with in this piece, that First Solar, one of the largest uh, U.S. solar manufacturers, uh, said that they are not going to uh, uh, set up a plant in, I believe it was Arizona, um, uh, instead looking to Europe or India because the regulatory environment is so much better there. That's mm-hmm. really unfortunate. So the, the, this obviously this ruling is going to go off uh, in a lot of different directions um, and there's lots of uh, you know nuances to it. It's it, the, the ruling itself is kind of narrow and we can get into some of that. But Heather, what did you take away from all this? Yeah, so that first solar example was a great one. It sort of helped ground it. Now, just to be clear, that particular decision was not exactly related to the ruling last week. However, it it does relate to the the general uncertainty as far as regulation goes in the United States um, on on these issues. The thing that the thing that I came away with is that there is certainty that the sort of major questions doctrine, which is which is what this particular ruling really hinged on, will be used to attack other regulatory, agencies and other policies that um, we've been counting on or, or hoping for as, as far as climate change action goes um, at the corporate level. In particular, um, there's a it's a pretty clear that there will be challenges to the SEC disclosure, the rule, you know, the, the proposed disclosure rules that they're that they're working on. Um, they're not even in place yet, but we we can already see the picture, <laughs> the, the the fingers pointing over there. I mean, it just right after the EPA, right after the ruling, 
the attorney general of West Virginia, Patrick Morrissey, made it very clear. He said, uh, he's, quote, West Virginia is ready for President Biden's workarounds. We took them all the way to, to the Supreme Court and we beat them this time and we are prepared to do it again and again and again, um, end quote. And he is already mentioned uh, the SEC's disclosure rule as one that he's not happy with. Um, so I think the one certainty is that states that don't like particular regulatory policies um, that are at the administrative level, federal level, will come after them. So that, for me, was sort of the most far-reaching. Yeah. And, and it's not just climate, Heather, um, because yeah. because uh, some of the analysts say that you know, food and drugs, occupational exactly. health and safety, labor issues, communications, uh, re- regulating the financial sector, uh, a lot of the SEC, but, but well beyond climate, these are all now up for grabs, uh, potentially, if, if somebody, they have to be taken on one at a time uh, in, in, in the right uh, venue, uh, judicial or, or administrative or, or legislative. Um, but this is stuff that we all thought was sort of settled law. And in fact, that's one of the big sort of radical moves that the uh, Supreme Court made on a number of issues, notably on, on the Roe v. Wade, is that things that that even they said was established law, at least in their confirmation hearings and in other doctrines, uh, they were quite willing and able to to upend them and say not so not so established anymore. And so mm-hmm. what else out there, you know, with Clean Air Act, Clean Water Act and endangered species and so many other laws in the environmental sector uh, and, and, and dozens, if not hundreds of others, are, that are they're sweeping uh, laws that Congress enacted. Congress enacted. It wasn't just made up by some president. Uh, and, and Republican and Democratic uh, Congresses uh, did this. So this is really confusing, to be honest. I don't know how we move forward or what we can expect. And, and back to this whole idea of certainty, which business needs, it's going to be a slog to, before we figure out what really is here to stay and, and what's up for grabs. Yeah, and a slog over time, which we don't really have right now. So that's, yeah, that's that's the other thing. So, hey, I don't want to be totally depressed. <laughs> well, good. <laughs> right. But it's, you know, here we are just, uh, you know, celebrating America's independence. And the question is, independence from what these days? I don't know. It's feeling less celebratory as much as I love being an American. I uh, just, you know, it's, it's like it's like what they say about uh, foreigners. Foreigners hate America, but love Americans. I love being an American, but I don't necessarily love America right now. It's just, it's hard because it's, it's, it's so uh, uncertain and so uh, chaotic and, and so depressing in so many ways. But Ah, sorry. Uh, let's move on because I really like this piece that uh, senior editor Jesse Klein did. Um, that's a one of the Green Biz 101 series of sort of explainers about water pricing and will yeah. it be the next carbon pricing? Um, and uh, it, it, it's a really interesting take to understand uh, where this might be going and 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 why. Uh, water pricing may be uh, needed. I mean, I think it's obvious that water has never been priced based on its value. It's 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 been subsidized or free in many cases, and and so it's been overused. There's no incentives to to use it efficiently because you can use as much as you want because it's free or costs next to nothing relative to other business costs. 
And so at what point does that change now that uh, droughts are, are uh, well, uh, not just in front of us, but we're in the middle of them and, and other water uncertainty. So I love this take that she did, and including how do you set an internal water price? What do you think, mm-hmm. Heather? Yeah, so I, I appreciate this story as well, um, partly because I think that the, we're going to see a lot more action on climate uh, like the link between climate and water policy. Um, we've heard more from some of the bigger consumer products companies that are trying to get a handle on their exposure. I mean, it's about risk, right? In a lot of, um, in a lot of ways. Will Sarney, who's our longtime contributor on water issues, talks about the fact that this whole idea of adopting what you call a shadow price on water is about five years behind carbon pricing. So in essence, what, what a few companies are doing is they are saying, yes, we pay this much for water on, you know, in reality, but, but, but we really think it's worth this much. And so they're setting this shadow price and they're using it in um, calculating things like whether they put a, a, a factory or a, a new facility in a certain area of, of the world or, what they might need to do to help restore water in in a certain another area of the world. So Nestle, Colgate Palmolive, Anheuser Busch, um, InBev, they all ha- they are all um, among organizations that do ha- sort of use this shadow price internally to just basically help the, the 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 money people within within organizations understand the implications of you know what happens if if these withdrawals can't happen in the future. So I like it. I think it's you know, it is a complicated issue. We, we don't hear about, I don't, I don't mean at least not hearing about water taxes. You know, you don't talk about internal, <laughs> like we talk about carbon pricing at all, all the time at a federal level, but what happens at the water level? So, you know, I think one of the things that that's really striking is that when you think about carbon emissions, right, they go out and then they're, they're everywhere. Water is a very local issue, and I think that's the other thing that makes this very difficult for companies. They have to really, they can't just have this sort of blanket strategy that that spreads across everywhere. They have to be very specific and very focused in in their intention and also in the action in different regions. So yeah, it's a great, I think it's a great think piece. Well, it's not only just localized, it's also temporal, which means that water changes uh, year year over year and, and season over season. Mm-hmm. And that makes uh, predictions and, and, and some of that can be based on historical flows and water table levels and things like that, but but um, that his, historical things are, are no longer relevant in a in a climate constrained world. Um, but this is more about internal water pricing, I think, which is which is uh, something that companies have been doing on carbon for a while, which is saying, okay, if we had to pay uh, the full value of this, you know, how would we do that? And and then charging internally uh, that price and that money, you know, goes somewhere. Maybe some goes into a uh, a pool for uh, efficiency improvements. Maybe it goes for, I don't know what, but um, helping train companies to think about water and price it, even if the rest of the world or the local water utility isn't pricing it that way. So I think this is a, a great um, step forward in in uh, in helping understand the world we're getting into and to be ready for it, at least uh, slightly more ready for it once we start seeing the the constraints on water become even greater. But uh, let's switch to, uh, we have a bunch of things that we're going to talk about 
not just in this episode, but going forward from our Greenfin conference last week, which was fabulous. Uh, it really was. Uh, 600 plus people in, in uh, uh, Chelsea neighborhood of, uh, of, of New York City. Really happy to be together and, and some really great content. And you're going to, you've set up some clips you're going to run in a second. But this one story you, you picked here um, uh, that uh, a lot of different sessions, a lot of different stories we've run on the site. But this one with uh, series president and CEO Mindy Luber in conversation with uh, Wendy Cromwell, who's the vice chair and head of sustainable development at Wellington Management. Talk about why you thought this was uh, particularly interesting. So I think, and this comes out in the clip we'll run with her in a moment, but I, I loved how she addressed that this is not just woke capitalism, that this is part of the the company's in strategy. So uh, Wendy Cromwell is the vice chair of uh, Wellington. Um, they were one of the 30 co-founding members of the Net, Net Zero Asset Managers in Initiative back in 2020. Um, she's in, on the advisory council. And she really, I just loved hearing her talk about how the how entrenched these issues are within the, the systems and why they they need to become even more entrenched that they're not, it shouldn't be this separate thing. It's the, these things are part of the of the system fundamentally. And so that was sort of my um, when, when she started addressing that and and you're talking about how that flowed into her her own organization and how they were asking um, their teams to think about the, these issues. I, that for me was sort of the most one of the most compelling parts of of the uh, the discussion. The other thing that I I really and uh, this I think this was uh, also reflected on in a piece by our senior energy analyst Sarah Golden. But sort of the the uh, <laughs> the, the sort of language, the two different worlds of language, right? And this came up a lot during the conference, which is we have this climate language, and then we have this financial language, and and sometimes the two sides don't really know what. Um, what they mean and and to to get better at translating for each other that's an important part of this this next evolution of where we go with sustainable investing she she related this anecdote um of where she was speaking with a science advisor it was um Phil Duffy who's now on the uh climate he's now a advisor for the Biden administration and um talked about a basis point in in the conversation she mentioned this to him as as he was talking about different climate um risks and he's paused and asked, what is a basis point? <laughs> I think sometimes we just assume um, that people understand what we're talking about. And I think it's, it was just a great reminder of we need to get much more straightforward with our language and, make, and put it in terms that, that real people, whoever those real people are, can, can really relate to. So Heather, as you do with every event and do so wonderfully, you've queued up a number of clips from, in this case, from last week's uh, Greenfin 22 conference. Um, set it up for us. What do you got? What are we going to hear? Okay, so I have five different clips for us here, starting with one of our most uh, high-profile guests, Mark Carney, who is the UN Special Envoy on Climate Action and Finance 
um, and was also the former, um, I forget what his title is, but he was formerly with the Bank of England. But obviously, um, real heavy hitter as far as talking about how the financial sector needs to participate in the net zero transition. And here he talks about the responsibility that financial institutions have in asking the right questions, in demanding the right kind of data, and not just estimates of this data, but the data that will help the financial world invest in the right things to to get to net zero. So here's Mark Carney. Yeah, I think it's hugely important to drill down. Um, So net zero 2050, that's table stakes. Uh, fair share of decarbonization of your portfolio uh, emissions, uh, your financed emissions by 2030. Um, If you're a bank, uh, many banks in the room, I'm sure, five-year decarbonization plans within 18 months of signing up, annual reporting for everybody, PCAF standards. Um, It's a lot um, and it's a big shift. And if I can make one other point is that it's mutually reinforcing because you have lenders, investors, you have financial data providers, and you have the regulators, whether it's uh, the NGFS, the 100 and plus uh, central banks, and of course the securities regulators uh, uh, like the SEC and disclosure standard uh, providers like the ISSB, all coming together and basically asking for the same thing. Um, so people have signed up for a lot, and now we're into translation of, um, of, of commitment um, into action. Uh, we've just issued a big consultation on what those plans, those net zero plans for financial institutions should look like, what we're asking of companies, what are the right sectoral pathways, how to conduct managed phase out, and at, by the end of the summer, how to refine approaches to portfolio alignment. And if I bring all that together, at least from my vantage point, um, what's the hardest thing? Well, one of this uh, operationalizing is moving um, from estimates and scores to real emission data. Um, uh, you know, very quickly, uh, given uh, the importance of this, um, moving uh, from you know 10,000 feet down to the ground level. Um, I think as well, uh, moving from targets to actions by portfolio companies, the companies that weren't uh, you're either lending to or investing in. And very soon, I mentioned a moment ago, portfolio alignment, um, all financial institutions and stakeholders in those financial institutions are going to be looking at um, how well aligned are our portfolios to the transition. So that requires an assessment of the credibility of those transition plans of portfolio companies. I think in the end, in many respects, that's going to be one of the challenges uh, because you know, we want to get capital to companies that are providing the solutions that are getting emissions down. And, and there's a forward looking element to that, uh, which requires some judgment, uh, judgment based on hard granular data, as I say. Um, and then I guess um, the last thing uh, which uh, all institutions face and, and, and we're on you know, continuum uh, from passive through to uh, uh, control ownership um, is how hands on to be um, uh, in terms of requiring specific uh, mission reduction uh, initiatives of, of companies, or to what extent um, is it laying out <clears throat> clearly the objectives, the measurement, um, and then the portfolio uh, management um, that, uh, with the expectation that that drives uh, the underlying change. Of course, the answer is somewhere in between. We need the whole financial ecosystem working on this um, in order to get things moving. Quite often, you know, there's a discussion about the difficulty of collecting um, scope three emissions. Um, that's true except that you know scope three is somebody else's scope one um and um ultimately the system is being uh pushed by all these different levers to get that information so you the first thing is is getting um through the value chain um that that emission data um and then it's identifying 
where the low hanging fruit is. I, 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 yes, it's easier if you're in a controlled position or a position of influence or high level of engagement because you're a material stakeholder and there's a more of a dialogue with the company. Um, but the expectation that there's progress that your the portfolio company is building credibility and building credibility through actual reductions is there. Uh, and it's that level of um, expectation um, and maybe even stronger than that um, requirement um, that our portfolio companies have this information and then are actively managing through the value chain uh, to get the reductions uh, that we all need to meet. <clears throat> and I'll uh, come back to one of these core commitments that GFANS members have made, which is that fair share of the reduction for 2030 and looping back to a nearer term target of, of a five-year uh, decarbonization plan. So next up, we have a, some reflections from Sarah Bloom Raskin, the former Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Treasury and former Governor for the Federal Reserve. She's addressing the bigger macroeconomic picture and how it informs the ESG movement. So here's Sarah Bloom Raskin. Here's, here's kind of what, what it looks like to me at the moment. And I think we are seeing really a collision of really important forces right now that are creating a almost reimagined capitalism for a warming planet, um, a warming world. And what, what are these forces? So the forces that I see, Grant, are um, certainly economic forces, the forces of the economy, the forces of climate, and, and, and we're, we're learning and we're experiencing what those forces look like, and then, of course, the forces of finance. And, um, you know, I think while it's really, um, you know, it's, it's a whole other separate topic to think about what the components are of this kind of reimagined capitalism that are currently in the, you know, sort of in, in moving into place, um, let's say something about the forces, what these different forces are. So, first of all, climate, like the forces of climate, right? So we know, and it really, you know, goes without saying, and I'll you know, sort of um, state what is, what is really should be obvious, but, you know, the climate forces we are in the midst of, you know, a climate crisis, right, that is, um, you know, accelerating, it is um, escalating, it is unpredictable, it is creating massive damage. We see costs associated with droughts, with storms, with with excessive rainfall, we, we are in the midst of, uh, of extraordinary climate forces. So um, those are the climate forces, and they are appearing, and we are living with them today at this moment. Um, at the same time we see these climate forces, we are also experiencing significant financial forces, right? We are hearing investors, uh, retirees, uh, workers, really wanting a um, investment portfolios that are going to be doing something about this most profound risk. So essentially, uh, financial forces are, are just so keyed up and uh, demanding much more than is currently happening. And then, of course, the economic forces, right? And the economic forces are absolutely profound at the moment. Uh, because we are experiencing, um, particularly you know, in the US, in the EU, and even in the Asian countries, a consolidation of different 
uh, economic forces, strong economic forces. What are we seeing? We are seeing in really in the last 18 months, right, we have seen the fastest global growth that we'd ever seen in the last 50 years. And this global growth is coinciding with one of the most rapid slowdowns being projected. Um, and all of this, you know, these as if those two major macroeconomic headwinds, as if they were, would not be enough, you have them against really a background um, and a backdrop of um, financial vulnerability, right? So we have these vulnerabilities that, um, financial vulnerabilities that come about because we've had a prolonged period of time in a low interest rate environment. And this low interest rate environment has produced particular bubbles. We are dealing with a heavy overhang of indebtedness, for example. We are dealing with surging house prices, right? But we are also dealing with because of the you know because of this macroeconomic context a energy security set of issues right and so we're starting to see now a significant financial vulnerability uh, presenting itself by way of the possibility of a disorderly energy transition if we don't transition uh, in an orderly predictable foreshadowed way we are going to see much more chaos in financial markets. So anyway, a long way of saying that these, you know, these different forces are coming together um, and they are um, in essence sort of producing new awareness regarding, um, regarding what has to happen going forward. And you know, you see this and we'll get, we can really kind of, you know, channel the, the, the policy nerd here. I don't know if anybody has read the recent um, report of the BIS, which is the Bank of International Settlements, but that report in just the last week produced, you know, and, and, and talks about these forces, right? Talks about these macroeconomic forces, but essentially has said in its report, in the midst of, you know, the, of higher inflation and possible decelerating growth and greater financial vulnerability, you, you hear the BIS saying that, the, that a timely increase in green energy investment could impose relatively small near-term costs and persistent long-term gains. So you're seeing this notion now of energy, energy security, investment in, uh, in green energy as being critical to actually whether or not we get a soft landing as we move through this economic turmoil. The next series of comments is from the panel that I did on ESG scores, and they all address the issue of why we should value diversity of scores as, as opposed to just correlation of them. So seeing seeing a rating that's the same and, and how we reflect the differences in them. So you're going to hear from three individuals here, first from Rich Madison, president and CEO of S&P Sustainable One followed by Andy Siwo, the Director of Sustainable Investments and Climate Solutions with the New York State Common Retirement Fund, and then Will Atchison, ESG strategist for Jefferies. If, if ESG scores or a component of an ESG score is measuring something that should be universally agreed as a distinct point, and that actually there is a track record that you can measure against, like credit ratings, the reason why credit ratings are well correlated is because they're a track record of default. So every rating agency modifies continually its methodology to ensure it gets better and better at predicting credit risk. Mm -hmm. So 
they are essentially harmonizing around a history of default and getting better at predicting that over time. Um, what is that equivalent in ESG? I mean, it's a huge space. There's so many different things to look at. That's part of the reason why you don't have correlation. But the other reason is, and this is you know, a hypothesis, but maybe ESG ratings or scores shouldn't really be compared to credit ratings. Maybe they're more akin to something like um, earnings estimates, where we do value the diversity of opinion. Frankly, it is interesting that you might have a different opinion about the earnings of a company versus another analyst. And, and in that difference is, is some interesting narrative and dialogue when you dig into it. And, and why? Because it's a very complicated set of, of things that you're analyzing when you're analyzing a set of earnings. And you know, you're analyzing all aspects of the prospects of a business. And you can use many different types of data. Some analysts use different models and different data sets. And, and actually, that's totally accepted by markets, that diversity of opinion. So my question really is, should we be aiming for a more precise but singular defined measure of ESG that you can look and correlate more tightly, but it's really narrowly defined around a very few set of criteria and it's measurable over a track record and time? Or should we actually be thinking more about valuing that diversity of opinion and understanding why there is a difference in opinion? Because that actually might drive some insight through the marketplace. That's an, that's an open question. What we've done that has helped is look at this as in an asset class specific way. So for example, on the IOU side, on the credit side is really, can you pay me back? And if not, what can I recover? So I can ask my 60 year old nephew, which friend would you lend money to? He'll say Johnny next door. If he doesn't pay me, I'll just walk over and beat him up. Like that's, you could be a bond. You could, wow, that's credit, good credit underwriting. So, but there, there, are, uh, there are endless reasons on the equity side why stock prices go up and down. But on the bond side or on the credit side, in fairness to credit ratings, you're only looking at two things, right? So on the equity side, for everyone buying a stock, someone with the exact same information is mm -hmm. selling that same mm -hmm. stock. Mm -hmm. So I'm not quite sure if we should be looking for standardization, but comparability is important. So anyone covering a large cap stock, 15 analysts, five will say buy, five will say hold, five will say sell. I, I expect that. Now, if everyone said buy on an equity, I'd, I'd be a little nervous. So I, I think the standardization is something that I'm not quite sure we should be aiming for, but comparability. So, I talked to, if not S&P, maybe one of your peers, where, where they look at ESG scores, they're looking at sustainability. And I asked, well, what do you mean by sustainability? They said, well, an ESG score of 74, let's just say an oil and gas company, uh, that is the highest that they can actually get. And what this score implies is their preparation for the low carbon environment. And we need to compare oil companies to other oil companies. So when a, lately, when an electric car manufacturer, CEO, asked, well, why is it that my firm fell out of this S&P 500 ESG index, and then there's an oil company that's in there? Well, what is an oil company, one's a car company? You have to compare car companies to car companies and oil companies to oil companies, or this won't really make sense. Mm -hmm. and, and I just want to build off that and touch on something you said, right? You talked about, you know, EPS. I can take an EPS number and do a P&E and get a price target. It's very hard for me to take a 74 or a 76 and then be, oh, I should discount my premia a little bit, right? Or maybe I should discount the multiple or out year growth, I should be worried about that or margins. I can't really tie that. Whereas with EPS, I can get a price target. Now, is it right? I think the market would tell you no, but you can get one. So I think that's kind of a little bit of difference there. And I like, I value your insight and 
look, you can highlight different things which different people are focused on, but I'm not sure if ratings is the best way to convey that information. Rather, it's conversations with management, it's thematic inclusion and like, you know, these different indexes, et cetera, that can really get you most of the same data without giving you a, a one number, right? A 74, what do I do with that? I don't know. It was difficult to pick a clip for Wendy Cromwell because she had so many different things to say. Uh, as I mentioned before, she's the vice chair and head of sustainable investment for Wellington. And here she talks about two different things. One is as how the firm should think about this transformation in a whole systems point of view. And, and that's how, how the firm is thinking about ESG. And then how we address the skeptics. Um, so things that, things that the skeptics really need to think about um, when when they think about financial markets and climate risks. We think we're seeing a transformation of capital markets, a paradigm shift. And then in order to remain a leader in asset management, which we believe we are and would like to continue to be, we need to transform ourselves wholly, not as a business unit, but have all 2,800 people see how SI and the analysis of SI is part of their day jobs. So that means if you're a lawyer, you, you need to understand the new regulations. If you're writing RFPs, you need to understand the content to answer the questions. If you're representing portfolios and product management, you need to be able to build it into your representation, build it into your um, philosophy and process reviews with investors. If you're an investor, if you're a researcher, obviously you need to build it into your investment philosophy and build it into your research process. So wholesale transformation because of the capital markets transformation that we're seeing. And some people ask me why I'm convinced that we're seeing a transformation in capital markets. It's not really a guess. If you follow the regulation, which is you know, not necessarily the sexiest topic, you see that the goal of regulators in Europe, but also elsewhere, is to transform capital markets. That's their express goal. And they're introducing new regulation with a theory of change touching every single point of that value chain and capital markets every year. And that's going to continue for at least the next five years. And with Europe introducing that type of regulation, we're also seeing others in Asia, Hong Kong, Singapore, adopting their orientation. So for those of you who follow things like SFDR, so a European regulation, you said no alphabet No alphabet All right, so European regulation, <laughs> Um, they have this designation that says, as a fund, you can be Article 6, which is ESG integration, but not sustainable. You can be Article 8, which is that you have a binding characteristic. You can be Article 9, which is you have a sustainability objective. Loosely, don't you? Know, um, loosely. What we're seeing now is our clients in Asia are saying, we want Article 8 funds. They're not even in the same jurisdiction. They're not beholden to that regulation, and yet they want to follow that guidepost because of the leadership that we're seeing and the fact that they want to be part of sustainable investment because they believe that it's going to impact capital markets over the next 10 and 20 years. For the skeptics, which I don't think we have skeptics in this room, maybe we do, but I don't think we have skeptics in this room, but when I encounter skeptics, I often um, describe to them what we've done in climate. So we started in 2018 with a partnership with Woodwell Climate Research Center um, focused on physical climate risk. We saw there was great work being done on transition risk, but nobody was really focusing on physical risk yet. This was back in 18. So we worked with them to bridge the gap, or the goal is to bridge the gap between climate science and finance. And I often tell the story about, which is a true story, sitting down with Phil Duffy 
head of Woodwell back in 18, and we said, we want to understand heat, drought, wildfire, hurricanes, floods, access to water issues in basis points. And Phil Duffy is a brilliant climate scientist. He's actually on loan to the White House right now. And he looked back at, from across the, the table at 280 Congress and said, what's a basis point? All right, and that's when we knew we were onto something. We don't know RCP scenarios or CMIP, or now we do, we didn't then, and they don't know basis points. So we were gonna have to work together if we were gonna figure out the impact of physical climate risks on capital markets. And what we've learned since then, working with them, is climate change isn't too far away to matter. I think many of our investors would have said that back in 18. It's the impacts are happening within an investable time frame. They're not being accurately priced and you need to focus on adaptation as well as mitigation because a lot of what's happening over the next 10 years is already baked into the system because of the long half-life of greenhouse gases in the uh, uh, environment. And we bring those examples. We'll bring a map to a company. We'll bring an example of our, we have a climate exposure risk application, an internal tool um, to client meetings and we'll say, okay, Here's two Muni bonds. Munis are funding a location, right? There's a project and a location. So some of their value is determined by the efficacy of that location, right? It's very easy to understand that when you're talking about Muni bonds. These two Muni bonds are exactly the same in terms of the financial characteristics. And then we bring out the climate characteristics and one is more degraded than the other. Which one do you wanna buy? And that's when it starts to click for people, when we can show them, okay, we're gonna buy this one and not that one because they're priced the same and this one has a lot more risk. And they're like, okay, I understand that. And then we can go asset class by asset class talking about how we're using this information. The other thing that studying physical climate risk did for us was it helped us understand that the transition is happening and will continue because the physical risk will become more evident and more severe. And so as those physical risks are unfortunately impacting more people, there will be more demand to keep the transition going. So when people say, why isn't it, you know, maybe it's going to reverse or all these kinds of things, or maybe it's going to stop, or maybe we're not going to do it. I think that's unlikely just given what we know about the physical climate risk that we'll face. So the two go together. And then if you understand that, you think, well, we need to then understand the transition better. Who's prepared, who's not prepared, who has a plan, where should we be asking for plans? Where's the nuance? And then you know, it opens up a whole world of exploration in terms of fundamental analysis for the companies that we own. So final clip is from Ron O'Hanley, the chairman and CEO of State Street. And here he addresses why divestment isn't always the best strategy when it comes to uh, how you engage with a high polluting, high climate risk sector. So here's Ron O'Hanley. Divestment is very seductive, right? Um, it's, uh, it, it seems like it's a tool you can say, you know, I showed them, you know, I've, you know, I've vacated my shares, I've sold my shares. Um, for the most part, there's good, I mean, if you sold them, there was a buyer, so nothing really right. changed. Uh, maybe, you know, you made a little money and they didn't make some money. But most importantly now, uh, you have no say in this, right? So you have no ability to influence as an owner uh, what's going on in this company. And as we've seen lots of institutional investors, uh, particularly educational institutions, uh, being pre somewhat pressured to divest, 
I think in the end we're all worse off. And I think we're really worse off if what happens is you've got a public company that's now going into, that's being taken private. Because, you know, whether we like it or not, the system around most of the world is that public companies have more scrutiny. There's more disclosures, you can see more. So we think that rather than divestment, engagement is actually quite important. Mm -hmm. Second thing I'd add to all this is, you know, I, I know we don't like in many instances, you know, I'll use the oil and gas industry as an example. We don't like where they are. We don't like what's happened. We don't like the amount of time it's taking to do this. Ultimately, the decarbonization is going to have to take place in and amongst the high carbon emitters, right? So divestment doesn't accomplish anything. In fact, investment may be what's required. It may be, in fact, it's highly likely that many of these companies are going to need more capital to actually get to the decarbonized state that we all desire. The path from brown to green, uh, one, is going to take some time, and two, probably has to pass through light brown before it gets to, to green, because there's, it's simply not going to get there overnight. Certainly the world has changed a lot in the last year, and if you think about coming out of COVID, <clears throat> we had the vaccines last year, you know, there was a very inspiring gathering in Glasgow, we all felt very good in that this was going to be kind of a straight line to 2050. <clears throat> and then... Inflation happened, Ukraine-Russia happened. And I think it was just a good reminder to all of us that uh, this is a multi-year, multi-decade journey. Um, and we can have the best plans in the world, and we need to do more planning. We need, as a society, to be starting to bring together decarbonization plans with energy policy. We talk about these as if they're separate things. Um, but it's also a reminder that stuff will happen over time. And that the answer is not to say, well, we can't do this anymore. It's, all right, well, given this and given the need to be just and how are we going to figure out energy costs for those that, where this is a major portion of their income, we need to figure that out, but we can't take our eyes off the long-term prize. So for me, this was actually in some ways a welcome reminder. It's happened relatively early in the journey, and it's something that I don't know what the next thing is that's going to happen, but the one thing I'm certain is stuff will happen. And we need to be prepared for not to be knocked off the journey, but to say, okay, uh, it's maybe not a straight line. So I always liken it to if you do Google Maps, they're going to map you the straight way there. If you do Waze, it kind of looks like this, but you're still going to get there. These are Waze journeys, and that's what we need to be prepared for. Well, thanks for lining those up, Heather. You can watch the entirety of the two 90-minute plenary sessions we had. Uh, just go over to greenbiz.com. I'll find your way to Greenfin, and at the top nav bar, it says virtual event. Eventually, in the next two weeks, those 90-minute uh, sessions will be broken up into individual sessions, too, which we'll be posting, and you can watch and share to your heart's content. Uh, so check out those and uh, be sure to come back next June. Uh, Greenfin 23 will be in Boston, Massachusetts, and we look forward to seeing you there. This spring, the WSLA Alumni Group recognized 11 women at the forefront of the sustainability profession. These leaders have made a difference by advancing new technologies or strategies, by overcoming personal and professional obstacles, and by committing to mentoring other women. They join more than 85 women who have been honored since 2014. I'm thrilled to introduce some of the latest inductees here on GreenBiz 350. 
This week, I'm joined by Millie Majumdar, Managing Director of GBCI India and Senior Vice President of the U.S. Green Building Council. Millie has more than 30 years of professional experience, and she was instrumental in pioneering energy-efficient buildings and sustainable construction policies across India. Millie, thank you for joining me. Thank you. So I want to start with a question I'm asking everyone, which is what inspired you to focus on a career related to environmental sustainability and ESG? What got you here? So as, as you have rightly said, I started my career uh, three decades back. So at that point in time, uh, knowledge about sustainability was very, uh, you know, less understood or very less practice. And I um, had a architectural degree from a college of architecture in India, after which I pursued my master's degree in building technologies. Having start, uh, studied both these courses, I felt that there is a deep connect between the built environment and the way we operate buildings. However, that's, that connection is not very profound, uh, profoundly taught or practiced uh, by architects in profession. So there was this disconnect that was there between how buildings you know, operated and performed vis-a-vis how they were designed. So that got me intrigued in the whole subject and I tried to connect the dots to make buildings more meaningful and built environment more uh, sustainable as well as more kind of, uh, you know, uh, the, the use of the buildings would be more scientifically driven. And uh, by that time, also the knowledge about energy efficiency, the need to save energy uh, was more and more felt. Um, and uh, so that gave me that niche to practice in a field that was very less ventured out. And that was the starting point. And now we are here. Yeah, so you were in a field that was unexplored and it gave you, it intrigued you, it intrigued you. What do you f- believe has been the most important factor in your success? Uh, the most important factor in my success has been uh, very hard work and uh, to be able to look at uh, the buildings, built environment, the spaces that we inhabit. Uh, with with deeper eyes and to see that much more goes behind, you know, operating them in in successfully and in an efficient way. And there is, uh, there's a lot of footprint that goes, carbon footprint, water footprint that happens uh, when we start, you know, even joining the lines together on a drawing board and constructing them on ground. Uh, so if we do not do it meaningfully, then one small mistake can lead to severe repercussions. So I think uh, that that is something uh, that was very important for me to consider. And that gave me that, you know, uh, kind of right path to move ahead in this space. What has been your most successful leadership habit or strategy? Something that's really helped you push forward? Um, I believe in uh, doing teamwork and also give the right opportunity to the teams to function in a coherent and a cohesive way. You know, as a leader in the team, and also I have reason, uh, you know, uh, I was not a leader from day one, right? So I have worked hands-on on the field. And I also understood, and at my time, uh, many things, you know, there were no... Uh, 
I did not have enough mentors who could give me uh, that kind of uh, backup or that kind of you know education or that kind of experience they could not share, which helped me to progress faster than I could do. So I believe in uh, men mentoring uh, my team and in a in a kind of a cohesive leadership where the teams function in a more transparent way and they also get their due recognition. I believe that as a leader, you succeed when, succeed, succeed when your teams succeed, you know. And uh, also it's very important to leave a legacy behind and your team should be trained enough to carry forward the legacy. Otherwise, whatever you do as a leader, that will get lost uh, once you kind of you know, transcend to a, maybe a different role. So in, in a nutshell, I think uh, empowering my team, uh, doing the hard work, getting into the details, uh, slogging it out, and also empowering teams to function in a more cohesive way. And empathy. I think as women, that's also very important that you should empathize with your women colleagues. Um, otherwise, they will not be able to you know, function properly. And they go through different phases in life. So it's very important to be with them and take the maximum out of them in an, you know, in an empathetic way. That is such a huge thing. Yeah, I totally agree with you on that. And mentoring is a big part of the WSLA awards. I like to think about it also from the other side. So you've talked about how it's helped some of the people around you on your team. How has it changed you being a mentor? How has that changed your perspective um, and your own career? Do you do you feel like things have changed because of that that activity that you've put in and the time you've put into it? You know, I always count my blessings. Um, that see, when when you are when you start a professional journey and when you are very young, then you want the best in the world, and you are not prepared to face any failures, right? But when you look around and when you go through that curve, you feel that, you know, failures of not only you, but also your team members uh, give you enough knowledge and experience to move ahead. So mentoring people has, people have given, you know, enormous satisfaction because uh, of the fact also people whom I have mentored, not everybody of them are working with me now in my current space. Wherever they have gone, they have excelled and they still remember me, respect me. And whenever they have to take one single name of somebody who has mentored them in their early career, they take my name. And that is my biggest success, I feel. That, you know, mentorship is not limited to the organization you work for and your immediate colleagues, but it's also, again, to my earlier point, the legacy you build, the teams you build. And if you look at the space where I'm working in, there are many people who have succeeded enormously and they have worked with me in the beginning and they still recalled, you know, the way I have been able to mentor them. So that's, that's I feel, is the most, you know, I count my blessings for that. And I really feel uh, very good about it, that they don't think of me as a leader who had, you know, kind of only talked about work and being very, very demanding without understanding. And also, I think it's very important that, you know, you empower people and you teach them the right methods, guide them in an effective way. That's also very important to get the right kind of outcomes and outputs for the organization. One last word of advice from you. What, what 
advice, recommendations would you give to anyone of any age pursuing a career in corporate sustainability? So you talked about what drove you into this career. What advice would you give to someone of any age, again, considering the same career? I think, you know, the space is changing very fast. See, when we started, it was looked in a very isolated way and the integrated thinking was not there. Now you have seen that the green building, the green space, you know, that's more evolving into a more consolidated ESG space where climate threats are more being understood in a financial way. So um, it's it's very important to be dynamic in your understanding, your knowledge, and not be very restrictive in what you think is right. Knowledge is ever expanding and the field is ever expanding. So keep your eyes and ears open and don't shy away from trying new things. That is something. And things are evolving very fast. So I think going forward, you know, AI, technology, ESG, that will take over this space and uh, so many new things will come up. Well, great. Thank you so much for joining us on Green Biz 350. Really appreciate it. Thank you. You just heard from Mili Majumdar, Managing Director of GBCI India and Senior Vice President of the U.S. Green Building Council. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to learn more about the organization's stories and events we mentioned. And while you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters, all seven of them. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com newsletters to sign up. We welcome your comments, questions, and tips. Our address, 350 at greenbiz.com. Heather and I will be back next week with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 